Hi, Creative. It's Lauren here. I just want to remind you that if you love the podcast, the best way to support the show is by leaving it a rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Actually, Spotify just started accepting ratings. So go ahead and rate it on there and tell all your friends to do it because it's super simple. It takes literally one second. I mean, maybe four seconds, but it's really quick. And uh, another great way to support the show is by sharing it with a friend or posting about it on social media. If you do post it on social media, tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. And remember to tag the guests too so they can also share. Okay, now let's get to the show. Can you think of any topic in this world as emotionally charged as money and our relationship with money? Whether you have a little, enough, or a lot, chances are you have many feelings around money and what money means. As creatives, we're given a lot of especially damaging money messages from starving artists to you can't make money doing what you love to just the term survival job and even the idea that we shouldn't charge too much for what we do because creative work isn't worth it. So I figured we could all use a little help on the topic, myself included. Today's guest is an entrepreneur, author, and financial expert who built her financial security from the ground up and will give you tools to change your relationship with money in order to start creating the life you want. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. And this show is meant to give you tools to claim your right to creativity, take fear out of the driver's seat, and love, trust, and know yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today's guest is Tori Dunlap. She's an investor, entrepreneur, podcaster, and social media personality. Best known for founding her company, Her First 100K, her podcast, Financial Feminist, her many appearances on TV, such as Good Morning America and The Today Show show and for her first book, Financial Feminist, which is out now. At the age of 22, Tori started her financial education blog and made a goal of saving $100,000 by the time she reached age 25. She did just that, and now she helps other women out there do the same. From our chat, you'll learn how to change and heal your relationship with money, a hot and fast education on investing and where to start, the importance of making a budget and how to make it fun, and how to see money as a source of joy, abundance, ease, and as a tool to build the life you want. Now here she is, Tori Dunlap. So excited to have you on the show. I wish I could see on Instagram how long you've been following someone because I know I've been following her first 100K since really early on. And it's been a privilege and an honor to get to watch you grow and become the full superstar that I've always seen you to be. So welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative. Thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Ah, well, stoked to have you. Okay, so we have a lot in common. I also got a BFA in theater a BA in communication. I think you said you were Catholic or at least you were like, you played. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're Catholic. I also related to a lot of things you told me. Well, they did feel like that reading your book. I felt like you were talking directly to me. We'll get into like how amazing your voice is and how well-developed your voice is as a writer. But I just feel you on a soul level and I want to get into it. So like creativity, passion, this obviously runs through your veins. When you were growing up, what did you want to be? I probably, I mean, an actor, I think that was probably the default answer. Although the answer changed a lot, but it was like some kind of powerful thing, right? It was yeah. like typically performer. Cause I started dancing when I was two, I was singing before I could talk. I was in the first play when I was five, started piano around the same time. Like that was my thing. And so I grew up always 
so ambitious. Yeah. I have joked and I post about this on social media. You may have seen it that I literally wrote down when I was seven or eight years old that I wanted to write a book by the time I had died. <laughs> I was like making bucket lists when I was seven. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but like writing the book was as much for like seven-year-old me as it was, of course, for hopefully everybody who's going to read it. So I was always this like ambitious, precocious kid. I started my first business when I was nine years old. I had vending machines, the kind where you would put quarters in, you get a handful of candy out. I owned 15 of those by the time I graduated high school and all the profits went to my college fund. And so I, you know, entrepreneurship ran very early. And then as I was coming into adulthood and coming into womanhood, Donald Trump gets elected about six months after I graduate college. And I'm trying to figure out the person I want to be and the woman I want to be. And how do I, you know, fulfill all of the dreams that childhood me had while also understanding that we're in a very different country than I thought we would be as I think a lot of us did. And that's what led me to my work with her first hundred K was the realization that we don't have any sort of equality for any marginalized group until we have that financial equality. And Mm -hmm. I look back on childhood me who was like so powerful and who had all of these dreams and hadn't had those experiences yet where she was forced to play small. And then as you grow up as a woman, right, as you grow up as a girl, you have these experiences that you can remember of, oh, this weird thing was said to me when I was a kid, or I was told that, you know, I couldn't do this, but boys could. And that was, you know, my focus in founding my company and this movement of financial feminism is how do we get more women standing in their power? And for me, the answer to that was money. It was a financial foundation. I believe that we don't have any sort of equality for any marginalized group until you have financial equality. And so I could see it in my own life. I could see, oh, I had all of these choices and these options open up to me because I was educated about money. But if you would have told me even five years ago, Tori, you're going to be a financial educator, I would have laughed in your face because that was not part of the plan at all. So much to break down from what you just said. Such a beautiful description of how you transition from child to what you're doing now. But I am curious because you're clearly an artist and a creative. How did you find your way into finance and make it your own? Because you clearly have made it your own. I really appreciate you saying that because I think I've had a really interesting, I almost said battle, but an interesting relationship with creativity in the past couple of years. Because as a business owner, especially as someone who, you know, is running a profitable business, you have to use so much of your left brain. It is so like analytics and data. And I don't know if I would have described myself even now. I think if, you know, you gave me five words to describe myself, I'm not sure if creative would actually come up because for me, I think I define creativity in a lot of ways as like, you're a painter or a sculptor. And like, that's what creativity is. And I've learned to understand that creativity is, you know, much more than that and that I'm creative every day and how I run the business or how I approach my work. And we are a financial education company, but we really actually consider ourselves to be a feminist company who talks about money. And in our pursuit of, you know, educating women, I think that my skills as a actor, my skills as a presenter, my skills as a marketer have been the most helpful And I am kind of self-taught when it comes to money. I had a really good financial education from my parents. And then when I got into college and beyond college and I was trying to manage my own money, that was a lot of just like me watching videos, me reading books, me consuming everything I could. And then realizing, especially again, after Donald Trump got elected, that there was this huge missing piece in how we had a conversation about money. It was a form of protest 
to be financially educated in a system and in a society that actively bars that education from you. It is an act of protest for you to be in rooms that you want to be in rather than rooms you're forced to be in, right? Or situations you're forced to be in. And so I think the powerful way we've connected with people is by sharing our idea that money is a tool. We're taught as women that you need to be good at math to be good at money. And you're not good at math. So you're not good at money. Like I majored in theater. I was fine at math, but like I didn't major in finance. I technically didn't even major in business. Instead, what was really clear to me again is that if I can get money into my own hands, my life will start to change and then I can change the communities around me. And that is the feeling I want for every woman is the ability to transform your life and to not have money be an obstacle in that transformation. Yeah, I loved in the book how you gave the image of when you have money, you're actually just lengthening your table, right? Like what I wrote down is take care, then share. So you take care of yourself And then you get to share, literally share the wealth with other people, share the wealth, share the knowledge, invite more people into having a better life through more resources. Right. And yeah. And no, go ahead. I mean, I just love what a feminine view on leadership that is. Mm, That's a really poetic way of viewing that. It took me a really long time to write that introduction because I was trying to communicate a lot of things in that intro. And I remembered out of the blue, I mean, you talk about like creativity or inspiration. I actually wrote the epilogue of the book before I wrote the introduction. And if you didn't make it all the way through, no worries. But I I did. As you know, then I bookend the book with that quote, right? I start the book with that and I end it with that. And I actually wrote the epilogue in a flash of inspiration. That epilogue took me five minutes. And I think it's the best thing I've ever created. Like truly, I think it's the best thing I've ever written. And that informed then the introduction. Because what I was trying to communicate is what is financial feminism? Like what is this movement, especially under capitalism, especially in a society that feels really icky a lot of the times and is rooted in systemic oppression? Like how can you like consciously want to build wealth without feeling guilty or ashamed or weird about that? And how do you not just like hoard that, but use it to better your life and therefore better other people's lives? So if you read my book, Financial Feminist, what you'll find is that the same quote is the thing that starts the book and ends the book, which to your point is when you have all you need, build a longer table, not a higher fence. This idea of take care of yourself first, put on your own oxygen mask first. And then when you're good, you get to invite other people to that table, right? And you get to use those resources to start changing other people's lives and changing your communities. And that for me is what the definition of financial feminism is, is use the resources to set yourself a financial foundation that you're taking care of, and then use those resources to change the world for the people who don't have the same reality as you. Beautiful. So I want to get into your incredible story. And I want to deep dive in the book. I have like a million notes on every chapter, but (laughs) it's so exciting because I want to hear all of them because you're one of the first people who has like gotten to read it. Yes. And so I'm honored. That is the only thing that's keeping me moving forward during this like really stressful time of book launch. It literally makes me teary. I have not been able to walk in or past a bookstore for the last six months without crying because I'm just like so ready for that moment where Mm. I get to see it and I get to like see it in somebody's hands. So like, I would love to hear what you thought of it. Okay. Well, I have to tell you, I'm obsessed with the emotions of money chapter because this is like a big thing in my life and my relationship right now. It actually opened up a really good discussion between me and my boyfriend last night. Like 
I was like literally like highlighting passages and reading them to him. And I'm like, see, this is what we've been talking about. And I also just listened to your relationship red flag episode in your podcast. It's so good. I mean, I I love that you talk about this because, okay, so here's the deal. My podcast is called Unleash Your Inner Creative. What it really is, is a holistic approach to creativity, kind of the same way you approach finances, right? right? So instead of being like, just be creative. It's like, how can you love yourself, trust yourself, and know yourself enough to pursue what's on your heart? And yes. I feel that's the same way you approach financial literacy is like, how can we deconstruct these viewpoints we have and these feelings of I'm not enough to know you deserve everything out there? And then you get like the practical tools to get it. Oh God. Yes. And I know you work closely with Glennon Doyle, who is such an inspiration for my work and like untamed changed my life. And I'll talk to you later about it. But like, I feel like there's so many women who are talking about that same thing. Right. And I know you are of worthiness, right. In every aspect of your life. And we hear about it a lot, you know, worthiness of love or a good partner or a good job, but we don't think about it in terms of money. Because we've been actively told, and again, you've read the books, you know this, there's this patriarchal narrative that gets perpetuated that if you are pursuing money, that is evil or wrong or bad, that the pursuit of wealth, specifically for women, Mm -hmm. is immoral. And yet we can look on Instagram and we can see dudes out on the golf course with Rolexes and we see comments like, oh, you must be doing well for yourself. Congrats, bro. Versus like, you know, if I were to post a photo of me in like a designer dress or something, I'm going to get ripped to pieces because we don't allow women to pursue wealth in the same way. And then we make ourselves feel guilty because society does. Mm -hmm. A stack of paper is not inherently good or bad. Truly, it is what you do with it that's good or bad right? We see plenty of people misuse wealth in a really icky way. And there's plenty of people who use money as a source of good and powerful change. And that's one of the things that I am trying to encourage women to do with this book is that you have to realize what sort of narratives you've been taught. And that's why we spend the whole first chapter. It's the longest chapter in the book talking about the emotions or the psychology of money, because you can't get a budget together. You can't pay off your debt. You can't open a Roth IRA until you know and have unpacked how all of these things are affecting your psyche and affecting how you manifest, yeah, the feeling of deserving wealth or not deserving wealth. And so in this sort of grappling with our worthiness, I really wish that we were talking about money as much as we're talking about the other things as well. Because again, like I said before, money means choices and options and all of these beautiful things and ease. So when it comes to worthiness, we have been told by society this narrative that you shouldn't want wealth, that you're not deserving of it, and that you definitely shouldn't pursue it because that's wrong. We think about like asking for more money. Oh, you're greedy. You're asking for more money. You're ungrateful. And the truth is, one, we want to be compensated fairly. And two, it is not inherently wrong to pursue wealth for the reasons of you benefiting yourself and benefiting the rest of society. So much to break down from what you said. But one thing that I really thought about is Even the women out in the world who are talking about the bravest, most vulnerable, courageous topics still won't broach the topic of wealth. Like you're one of the only women I know who actually talks about money, about having money, about how much money you have. And I have the utmost respect for these thought leaders. And I get it because to your point, the minute they do post themselves wearing something fancy or out on a nice vacation, people destroy them. Yes. Specifically women or other marginalized groups because they're triggered, right? Yeah. And we, as a society, I definitely don't personally, but like Elon Musk is like 
worshiped for his success and his billionaire status. I can just see the sorts of like headlines if Elon Musk was a woman, right? Of like, you know, you've had multiple children with multiple partners. You're a terrible mom, right? Why aren't you home with them? Instead, you're running a business, right? Like there's so many elements where we worship and encourage the pursuit of wealth for men. And then we shame women for the pursuit of wealth. If a woman even overcomes the narrative that pursuing wealth is bad. And again, to your point, we're more likely to have any other conversation about any other uncomfortable topic before we'll talk about money, sex, politics, religion, death. We know this from research and statistics. And what our work is trying to do is make money more accessible but also the whole talking about money as impolite is a yet another narrative we're told to keep us underpaid, overworked and playing small. So let's talk about one thing that's going on when people are triggered by seeing a woman who is wealthy and not like lying about it or minimizing it. If you, someone who's listening, is looking at something that is luxurious that a woman posts and like in themselves being like, how dare they? Can we break down what's actually happening inside of them? and how they can kind of dismantle that in themselves so they can also level up? I love this question. I wish more people asked this question. One, I have the utmost empathy for you because what's happening is we have been conditioned as women, and I can't speak for people of color, but I know that this conditioning happens for them as well, that there is one seat at the table, maybe even like half a seat, a quarter seat, right? And when we see another person's success, especially for women, another woman's success, it feels like a threat to our own survival because we're thinking even not in a manipulative way, but the conditioning that's happened Mm -hmm. is she got my seat at the table. And whenever somebody is standing in their own power and you are not, it feels like a threat as opposed to the positive, which it could be an opportunity for you to be inspired by that person standing in their power and standing in their confidence instead of a threat to your own consciousness or your own worthiness, right? So what's happening is that you feel like that seed has been taken from you and that there's not an opportunity for you and you feel called out. You have the opportunity again in that call out instead of being like, oh, I feel threatened by this person or I'm going to try to tear them down, but instead going, interesting, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel threatened by a person, especially a woman standing in her power and being confident and proudly saying she has this amount of money that she worked hard for, or she bought this thing that she's always wanted, or, you know, she did seven figures in her business this year. Like, why am I threatened by that? And instead, how can I be inspired by that? And instead of thinking of one seat, which is a scarcity mindset, there's only one seat at the table. Again, it's a patriarchal narrative meant to keep us playing small. Let's build our own table. Let's go and build our own table that has an abundance of seats. And that's part of the reason why I use that quote in my book in the fact that like we have been conditioned to believe there's one seat. What if we built our own table? Yeah. Let's build the table, honey buns. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's deep dive into the emotions of money because I have so many. I'm about to lay it all on you. Let's go. Lay it on me, Tori. Okay. So can we go through, first of all, like how do you even figure out what your conditioning is around money? Yes. So I walk through a journaling exercise in the book that I highly recommend that I've used with people. We call it like your first money memory. Like the first time you remember thinking about money, you had a conscious thought about money. And Lauren, if you're willing to share, I'd actually love to hear yours. I would love to. So actually, I went through it with my boyfriend last night. This is one of our little points. Yay! Loved this. This is an incredible exercise. So 
I have a memory of my parents. I was very privileged. Like, we always had more than enough. That was never a concern. But there was always fighting around money within my family. Mm. So my dad was a primary breadwinner. My mom still worked, but she worked part-time at American Airlines, so she didn't make nearly as much as my dad, who, by the way, is a financial planner. We can get into that later. But, you know, he made a lot more than her. So I have a memory of him, like, holding up this credit card bill that had come in with, like, 60 credit card charges from QVC and my mom being like what I didn't buy that I don't remember buying that my dad's like it's right here and then fighting over it and so I think there's a few things that like are breaking down there and affecting me now one is like money causes problems in relationships and whoever has the money I don't know there's a lot I'm working through it in therapy quite honestly which is something you advocate for in the book on your podcast I'm super grateful for it I don't know if I understand all the ways it's affecting me but I think that's like the general way is that money makes conflict in relationships it creates a weird dynamic yeah thank you for sharing first of all of course that's literally what we do throughout that chapter and as you know right is the interesting thing when you think about how you were raised around money is that that is going to impact every single part of how you manage money as an adult. We know from research that the vast majority of money habits are cemented by age seven. Yes. Second grade, which seems so early. And yet you've been watching in theory, your parents or your guardians or whomever manage money in a certain way. I had really thoughtful, frugal parents who were focused on value-based spending. And I learned if you want something, you got to save money for it. And that was you know, so impactful for me, but interestingly enough, quote unquote, positive money experience still was difficult for me when I was trying to figure out if I was going to quit my job to take my business full time. I love this story. I saw parents who always chose the stable option. They chose the 401k. They chose the health insurance. And literally I had my parents calling me saying, you need to keep your job no matter what it costs, basically, like you have to keep your job. And I often call them now and I'm like, Hey, remember that advice? Like, remember that advice? You told me to keep that job. Do you remember that? And I like tease them about it, but it was so difficult. And it felt like such a risk, even though I had money in the bank, I had momentum. I had just been on good morning America, but in my head, I was like, I can't do that because that is not the stable option. That's not the quote unquote smart choice. And so it's so interesting how the way we were raised around money will influence our money for the rest of our lives unless we actively do something about it. Now, I'm not a therapist, but if I were to psychoanalyze you, I think everything you said is accurate, right? That money now feels like a source of conflict. Mm -hmm. If it's, again, not a neutral thing, it is now something that causes conflict. It's charged. Right. And I imagine too, that you were talking about, like, I don't really know if it's like the person that has money, the person that doesn't, it's definitely a lack of control for somebody who doesn't have money or doesn't have the financial power. I think it's also potentially a feeling of, yeah, getting taken advantage of if you're the person that does have money or that the lack of communication, it sounds like from your parents, right? That your mom was making certain choices about money that your dad felt like needed a sort of like collaborative effort. Yes, that's it. I see this a lot with people. The amount of people who have come to me and said, my first money memory is like my parents fighting about money. That is probably the most common one. Or I remember not having money or not having enough money. Those are like the two common ones. And that's the interesting part is like that psychological impact, even if it was just like a brief moment, will affect every financial decision you make, whether you view money as abundant or scarce, whether... Mm -hmm. You didn't have a lot of money. So now you're hoarding money. I see this a lot with like first generation Americans is that 
okay, I didn't have a lot of money. So anytime I get money, I cannot spend it. I will feel guilty about spending because what if it all slips out from under me? Yeah. Like I see that all the time too. And so the emotions of money, I think a lot of us think immediately shame, fear, guilt, animosity. I think those are so common. And what I really encourage in the book, and I think hopefully we do successfully, is I try to get you to understand that, to not feel shame about those emotions, but to be more mindful that they're there and to eventually, hopefully through the book and our work, see money as a source of joy and ease and abundance. And again, as a tool to build the kind of life that you want. Because the beautiful part about the emotions around money is that you can also have the opportunity to have all of these beautiful things, all of these beautiful, fulfilling thoughts, feelings, emotions about money and about its impact on your life. Right. Because there's this other beautiful part. I think it's near the end of the chapter where you talk about visualization and thinking about the kind of life you can build once you have the money, which I think that, yes, we have to then first take like the negative emotional narrative out of money, right? Or like negatively emotional conditioning out of money. But then it's not enough to, I think, just be neutral. You have to think about what could it provide you? Because if you're just thinking of it as a stack of paper, like you said, that doesn't get why me do I want that? Like, I don't care about yeah. paper. I'm not Dwight Schrute, which I love how much you <laughs> quoted him in the book. Oh, The Office is my favorite. Me yeah, too. Um, I always call it. It's like my personal Xanax. It just takes the edge off. Oh, oh, <laughs> The Office. I could literally quote you entire episodes right now. And that's the other thing I wanted yeah. with the book too. to take a quick aside. It's like I wanted it to feel and hopefully it does like your best friend or your sister talking to you about money. Yes, because like, that is me. I'm going to break off in the middle of a talk. I gave a talk in Boston two days ago and I had a full tangent where I like had to do a full office quote and I was not satiated. I could not move forward with my talk what was until it? I had the entire quote. The one where he's doing, it was like the crisis where there was that inappropriate watermark on a stack of paper. Do you yeah. know, you know of in course, season of course. three? And I had to do the newspaper headline. What is it? Scranton area paper company Dunder Mifflin apologizes to valued clients. Some people still know how business is done. And see, like, I, I could not continue with my talk until I had the correct quote in its entirety. And that's what I'm doing in the book is hopefully one, making money, which feels often to people really scary or intimidating, super accessible. And two, I don't want to read a finance book that feels so boring and has graphs and charts. Like, no, thank you. I want Gilmore Girls references and I want John Mulaney quotes. You have a very unique and you voice as a writer from addressing the reader like a friend to peppering in office references. How did you find <laughs> your voice as a writer? So you did it perfectly. Like I knew you. you. I, I've known you from your social for a long time. Yeah. But I feel like I actually got to know you as a friend because I'm just getting Yay. snippets there. This was like, oh, she's my girl. She's my friend. I really appreciate That was the intent. It really came across. And it was like, I was thinking about what book would I like to read and also what book felt like me. Because when I thought about, you know, writing a book, I was like, oh, it has to be like I would write a research paper in college. And I was like, no, that's not the book I want to read. That's not what the book I want to write. And frankly, that book's already been done. And I knew that if I was going to write 80,000 words, it needed to make me laugh and be entertaining in order for me to finish it. Yeah. And again, like I said before, you think about this potentially really intimidating topic that is money. I didn't want it to feel ever intimidating or lofty or jargony. That was not my intent. I wanted to be able to use metaphors and use references and offer, you know, some brief moments of laughter 
during conversations that will probably feel uncomfortable to a lot of people. And if I can hopefully make you laugh or at least make you feel a little more comforted as we go through that, amazing. And also I just hope it's fun to read. That's the other thing is like, yes, it's a personal finance book. It will live on the shelves next to Dave Ramsey and next to Susie Orman. But I truly do believe that this is a like women's development book. And the goal, I mean, again, speaking of Glennon Doyle, like the goal for me is like this kind of book lives next to Wolfpack or Untamed or Big Magic or any of these books that have been so influential for me. And that we see money again as not this like Wall Street Chad unaccessible thing that isn't cool, but instead the opportunity for us to build the life that we want. Since we're talking a little bit about writing and about the book, and this is a show about creativity, what was your creative process like when you were writing this? The easiest way to describe it is it was like banging my head against a wall repeatedly and bribing my toddler of a brain with iPad time if it would just focus for 15 minutes. And I am a very focused, very ambitious person. This was the hardest thing professionally I've ever done. I was just talking to actually, um, I just recorded an episode of my podcast before I hopped on with you. And she was also an author. And she's like, I don't know how this got done. And I was like, that's how I feel. I feel like I blacked out for like three months at the end of it. I don't know how it got done. But it was interesting as someone who is very driven and who is been, you know, checking boxes on like what she's wanted to do and finds that pretty easy in a lot of ways. It was very, very difficult for me to figure out what I wanted to say, how I wanted to say it. And yeah, it literally felt like me bribing my brain of like, hey, just write this paragraph and I will give you, you know, the Timothy Chalamet video that you've been craving. And then I'd watch the video and my brain would be like, cool, I'm done for the day. And I'm like, no, you need to do that 80 more times. One paragraph is great and that's a win, but like we have to keep going. We're not just done for the day. The other thing is that I kept running the company while I wrote the book and I will not do that again. I learned my lesson there. I was still doing a full-time job of posting on TikTok every day and, you know, hosting the podcast and managing a team. And that was really challenging because I know most authors will take time just to write a book. I think the voice came very naturally to me. It was more how I wanted to structure it because half of each chapter is what I call like the patriarchal bullshit of it all. (laughs) Like, why are we here? How did we get here? What has been outside of our control? And then the latter half of the chapter is, okay, what can we do about it? What can we control? And I didn't realize how many breaks I was going to have to take both in general, just because like my brain was not cooperating in a lot of moments, but also the emotional toll of doing all of this research and realizing just how inequitable the world is. Mm. And of course I knew it, I've experienced it. But then when you research for a book and you start peeling back onion layers, you're like, oh, this is fucked. And I had to take so many moments that were just like, I need 45 minutes and I just need to like scream. Yeah. To not be here. Like, I think if there was one statistic that I found that I included in the book that if you're in a heteronormative relationship and you're a woman making more money than a man, you're more likely to lie on the census and say you make less. And your male partner is more likely to lie and say that he makes more. What the fuck is Why? that? <laughs> exactly. I'm like, what the fuck is that? And so there were all of these moments that I had to really, A, come to terms with just how awful a lot of this is, but also B, as a cisgendered white woman, figuring out 
okay, what part have I, you know, inadvertently unintentionally played in the upholding of these kind of systems? And I have done a lot of reckoning with my own privilege prior to that, but I think it was a really challenging, but good opportunity for me to understand how I wanted to approach my work in the future, how I could be more inclusive. The introduction was the hardest part for me to write. And I mentioned this before I wrote it last. It took 12, I think, iterations. It was really difficult for me to write because if you're truly living paycheck to paycheck, not like I still have a Netflix account paycheck to paycheck, but like truly paycheck to paycheck, there is nothing that this book or any other book can tell you, at least at this moment, that will help you. It requires government support and again, systemic change, and that will not be solved in a 300 page book. I had to take almost a month off of writing in the middle of the process because I was like, then what's the point at all? What's the point of writing this book at all? Because those are the people who actually need help. But I, as an individual or as a financial educator, I can't help them. It was coming to terms with the fact that, again, as I've defined financial feminism before, okay, I've taken care of myself. So now it's my job to use the information and the resources I have to try to take care of others to the best of my ability and to also understand that we cannot talk about money without talking about systemic oppression. We just can't do it. They're inextricably linked. hundred percent. But I did have a thought and I thought you did such a beautiful job with sharing different perspectives. You also brought in all these different experts throughout the book to speak to things that you couldn't. And I thought that was such a genius way to approach it. And then you would weave in and give your opinion on the things they said or like your experience of it if you had one. But something that struck me when you were talking about that is Yeah, maybe you can't reach every single person who's struggling, but what you can do is reach somebody who's struggling, who's in a phase where they could level up if they had this information, and maybe they will lengthen their table to include someone who's currently living paycheck to paycheck. That's the idea is the ripple effect. And again, I think just for a lot of people, the understanding that systemic oppression and money are linked is an aha moment for them Mm -hmm. because they've been told by previous financial educators or by the system that if you are not rich or you don't have money, it's because you didn't work hard enough. And there is something so freeing that happens when you tell people, no, you're working just fine. It's not you. It's the systemic oppression. It's not you. Even if that allows somebody to adjust their way of thinking or allows them to give themselves more grace and mercy, then we've done our job. So something you wrote in the book that slapped me awake was this. Capitalism puts a price tag on human life and women are less valuable than men, according to the system. That woke me up. Can you talk about that? So, yeah, there's an actual study, and I think I quote it right after, of like, there's an actual price we can put on a human life, which is so fucked up. Like, it's so icky. But literally women, because of the pay gap and because of, you know, the time we'll spend outside the workforce caring for other people and, you know, so many other systemic issues, we're literally worth less to a capitalist society. And it's so gross. It's just so gross. It's also, again, hopefully a little bit of a relief to know that, again, it has nothing to do with how hard you may or may not be working or oh, did I say a wrong thing in a job interview once? Like, that ain't it. (laughs) That's not it. And I talk about this in the beginning of the book is like, can we have feminism under capitalism? And the answer is technically no, because we just can't. True feminism does not exist under our current version of capitalism. I don't want to win capitalism because that means I've probably taken advantage of somebody. Mm. That means I've probably exploited somebody. If I am a multi-billionaire, I've probably exploited somebody. (laughs) I also can't lose capitalism 
because that means deep, deep suffering for myself and other people, right? If I choose not to participate, unless you're doing like a discovery channel, like Alaska show where you're like living off the grid, you know, but for the average person, that's not feasible. And so, especially when you realize that there's literally like a price on your head of like how much you're worth and it's substantially less than men. These are all the systemic issues that we're fighting against and that we're trying to navigate in a system that was not built by or for us. It's wild. Now, the gender pay gap, can you explain that a little bit more? Because I think some people get confused by it. Like say a woman is making more than her partner who happens to be male. And they're like, well, see, it doesn't exist, right? Tell us what it actually is. I mean, that would be like me going to like glassdoor.com and being like, I work at McDonald's. Why am I not paid the same as like a corporate attorney? Like that's not the same, right? You have to try to compare apples to apples, except the apples to apples you're comparing are so different because there's so many factors to that comparison. Yeah, it's definitely a gender divide. And we know that if you do not identify as male or female or a woman or man, that you also have a huge discrepancy if you're non-binary. So yeah, the pay gap is a variety of different things. We condition women to take jobs that are lower paying, like caregiving, right? You think nurse, teacher, like these are a lot of jobs that we condition women to take. And then what happens is that they are lower paying inherently because they're inherently less valuable. And I'm putting less valuable in quotes because there's women who are doing them. Again, we talk about that in the book. Mm -hmm. Then you think about just the fact that on a microcosm level, at the individual level, women are less likely to negotiate than men. And sometimes that's because they don't have the resources to, they don't know how. So that is the individual level. But beyond that, women are viewed as bitchy, ungrateful, insert word here, when they do try to negotiate. So there is a societal or specific like business perspective of women who try to advocate for their worth. I mean, there's so many elements to this, not a lack of paid family leave in the United States. We're the only quote unquote, like industrialized country that still does not have paid maternity leave. Women are more likely again to be caregivers. So they're not just taking care of potential children, but also ailing family members or other people in their lives. They're more likely to take on emotional labor and relationships that is uncompensated. Again, I was talking about an onion. Like when you start peeling back layers, you can peel layers all day. And that's just the pay gap. We talk about the wage gap or the wealth gap later, where you think about the fact that women are making 78 cents to a man's dollar, even worse if you're a woman of color, that's the average. But then women are waiting to invest compared to men. They're either not investing at all or they're investing at a much slower rate. So we're taking less money. It's growing at a slower rate. And then women on average live seven years longer than men do. So less money growing at a slower rate. And yet we're expected to live longer on that money. That equation makes no sense to me. So there's, again, all of these things, money and systemic oppression are inextricably linked. And when you talk about the pay gap, there are so many nuances. I mean, razors cost more, right? There's so many nuances to the common retort, which is like pay inequity is actually illegal. That's the TikTok comment I get all the time where like the pay gap's not real because pay inequity is illegal under, you know, state law. And I'm like, no, it's not though. Yeah. And it's also you share some shocking statistics about like, when was the first time a woman could open a line of credit was 70... 1974. 74. And in the book, you're like, the 70s were like yesterday, guys. Literally. They were literally like, 70s clothes are back, like rollerblading's back. Like my mom was, yeah, 14, 13 in the 70s. Like 
It's crazy. Wild. And then I think it's another 10 years before women could take out a business loan in her own name. It was like 1982 or something like that. So yeah, I mean, 2022 Roe versus Wade gets overturned. That's a hundred percent. That's a financial decision. The decision to terminate a pregnancy is a financial one. And I can relate almost any political thing back to money because it's all depends on money. It's completely affected by money. So again, peeling back the layers, it's so obvious to me why this work is needed. And it's so obvious to me that we have not been talking about it in a transparent, non-taboo way. So in the book, you have the different chapters, right? Is it that you order the chapters like this in like order of importance? So getting the emotions of money down first, then to spending, then to the financial game plan, debt, investing, earning. Is that the order in which you would advise people to go about it? That's really interesting. It's definitely in a specific order. It's less about like the level of importance. And it's actually more based on the financial game plan that I talk about in chapter three, which is like, okay, we have to save an emergency fund first. We have to pay off debt next, and then we need to invest. Right. And I talk more about that in the chapter, but before we actually, again, start talking about the actionable things, I need a psychological chapter in there, which is why it is the first chapter. And I say in there, and again, you'll remember this, I say like, it's going to be really tempting to skip this chapter because you're like, this is uncomfortable. I don't like it, but you can't budget successfully for the rest of your life. You can't make this a lifestyle because you will sabotage yourself unknowingly later until you understand why do I have these triggers around money? Why do I default to making this choice? Number two, the reason the spending chapter is before any of the rest of it is that spending is often the answer that gets given to women about how to manage money. For men, it is build your wealth, start investing. For women, it is stop getting manicures and that your purse is stupid, right? Like that's or the Or don't advice. drink a latte. The pinnacle example. So I talk about spending next because I think spending does impact the rest of those financial pieces, debt, investing, all of the rest of it. And because I want to give people a permission slip and an easy win right off the bat, which is like, I literally say in the book, you don't have to stop spending money. I just need you to stop spending money on shit you don't care about. It's not about deprivation. Yes. And I love the money diary. This idea. So let's walk through this. You basically say like for a few weeks, just keep a diary of everything you spend and notice trends. Why is this important? Well, one, we can't figure out what to do with our money until we know where it's going. Like that sounds so obvious, but the amount of people who tell me I get to the end of the month and I have no idea where the fuck my money went. And I'm like, okay, we're going to start there. The second thing is that we want your hard earned money going to things you actually like. You worked really hard for this money. I don't want it to go to things that A, you hate, or B, you feel lukewarm about. It is 2022. We don't do lukewarm anymore. We don't do lukewarm when it comes to money. And we definitely don't do it when it comes to men in relationships. Like definitely not there. So like, I want you feeling piping hot all the time. I want your money bringing you the most joy, the most ease, the most stability. And if it is not, we need to rethink that. We have to figure out what is bringing us joy. So I guide people through the money diary process in the book. And I've seen this work with clients. I've seen this work in my own life. Again, the realization that like, it's not about deprivation. It's not about stopping spending. It's just about figuring out what your values are and how you want money to reflect those values. So I'm sure you've seen the memes that are like, I don't check my bank account. I just go off of vibes. And I have to say, even as a financial planner, yeah, it's so good vibes, hang loose. As a financial planner's daughter, I almost kind of feel like it's the doctor's kid never goes in when they're sick. 
Yeah, the cobbler's shoes. What is it? Yeah. Have holes in them. And my dad did an incredible job. He's the greatest human on earth. But I think he took care of things for me a lot versus educating me. So I've had to really learn elsewhere. Like I learned to get my first credit card in a communication class in college when a guy from the credit union was like, you all need to be building credit. I'm like, I do? Holy shit. And I went and got my first $1,500 limit credit card from MSU Federal Credit Union. Thank you very much. But to circle back... I think I have lived off of this vibes idea a lot versus actually making a budget. And this book really made me realize a loose budget at the very least is very important. Yeah. You concur, obviously. But if somebody is kind of like me and been a vibe queen, how do we start becoming a budget queen? You don't have to stop being a vibe queen, first of all. That's the truth. Is like you can do both. And we talk about that in the chapter is that a budget does not mean deprivation. Diets don't work. 99% of diets don't work because the more you tell me I can't have fried chicken, the more I want fried chicken. That's not a willpower thing. That's literal psychology. So when it comes to putting a budget together, rather than thinking deprivation, restriction, which is what you've been taught, the word budget means. Instead, the word budget is actually a permission slip. Mm. It is simply the thing that you're doing in order to spend guilt-free. Because nothing's worse than going on that trip to Cabo and sipping the pina colada on the beach and then realizing, oh, fuck, this is all going on the credit card and I can't afford it. Because if that guilt doesn't settle in with your toes in the sand right there, it's going to settle in when you get home. And that's not going to be fun. And no one wants to spend their vacation with this little voice in the back of their head going like, yeah, but you can't afford this. You didn't budget for this. Instead, it's not don't take the trip to Cabo. It is plan ahead for the trip to Cabo so you feel absolutely joyous as much of the time as you can, right? So with the budget, and again, I talk about my specific budgeting method in the book. It's all about thinking of the budget as how can I plan ahead to spend a lot of my money on the things that I love and less of my money on the things that I don't? And how do I take care of future me and balance that with present me, right? How do I take budget queen and balance her with good vibes only because you don't have to eradicate either. You don't have to go, you know, a hundred percent and zero percent. There is a balance that you can find. I'm a finance expert. I have a bunch of money saved for retirement. I'm also out here taking trips to Italy almost every year. I'm eating really good food on the daily. Like that's what I love to spend my money on. And so I think again, if this book hopefully helps with anything, it's like talking about money and finding that balance of taking care of future you, thinking about future you in a really concrete way, and also making sure that you're enjoying your life right now. Totally. And I love that it wasn't so prescriptive. Like you had three buckets usually when you were talking about this and it felt a lot more expansive than the way I've heard other people talk about budgeting. Yeah. We're not tracking pennies. I got better things to do. And the other thing that I talk about over and over and over again in the book, there's certain things that like are hard and fast rules. And I make sure to like call those out of like, this has to be done first. Otherwise, personal finance is personal. Like, I don't know you. I don't know your life. I don't know your goals. I don't know your gender identity. I don't know your life expectancy. I don't know how much you make. Like, there's a lot of elements to money that are hyper personal. And yet again, we've been told this is the only way forward. And it's like, not really, not really. There are certain hard and fast rules, but most of it is like, I want you to feel good. And I want you to make sure that you're prioritizing your mental health and let's use money as a tool to get there. Yeah. Well, one of the hard and fast rules I thought was really good was this idea about debt and the 7% rule. Could you go into that? 
Yeah. So the idea is that you have high interest debt, which is above 7% or lower interest debt, which is obviously lower than 7%. And the reason 7% is the magic number is that 7% is the average return you can expect in the stock market. So if you are spending more money by being in debt than you could be making on the stock market, so if that interest rate is over 7%, it is more advantageous to pay off that debt first. Most student loans, most car loans are under 7%. So it's actually more advantageous for you to like start contributing to your 401k before you start aggressively paying off that debt. But if you have like credit cards, every credit card is above 7% interest. We want to pay off that credit card debt before we start heavily investing because again, you're spending more money. It's more expensive to be in debt than it is to invest in the stock market. And if someone's never invested, like let's say somebody's listening, I want to get into this like as probably our final question, but like they're living the life of an artist, you know, they feel like they have to live paycheck to paycheck and they haven't done anything to take that like small amount and start investing it. Can you go through where they should start? Time for Diet Coke break. Yes, yes, yes. I really needed that. Love what you love. Diet Coke. Get runway ready. A chance to win the ultimate shopping experience plus hundreds of prizes curated by Cape Moss. Promo packs in store, 18 plus, T's and C's. Visit coke.co.uk slash break. So we have the entire chapter on investing in the book. I also have an investing education platform that I co-created because I didn't like any of the rest of the stuff that was out there. A couple of the misconceptions, that's probably the easiest way to explain investing. One is that investing is complicated. It's really not. You've been told it's complicated so that finance bros can keep their job, like truly, (laughs) and that finance bros ego can feel inflated because they think like, oh, picking stocks is so hard. And I'm like, it's not. Also, you don't have to pick stocks. That's not what I do. And I'm no. The other thing too, is that we often hear that you have to have a lot of money to get started investing. Like, oh, I'll start investing later when I have more money and when, you know, I have more flexibility. The truth is, is that time is way more important than the amount of money. Time is way more important because of this lovely thing called compound interest. Compound interest is simply when your interest earns interest earns interest. And because of time, the more time you allow yourself, the higher your balance gets, the more money you have because you have more time for your interest to grow. So even if it's just like a couple hundred dollars, one time, and you can't do anything more than that right now. You can't invest consistently like every month. No worries. But that couple hundred dollars, let's say, in 30 years will be thousands of dollars. And so I would really encourage, especially women, to think about time being more important than the amount of money and consistency if you can. Even if it's just 50 bucks a month, putting money aside in the stock market is going to be so helpful. We also know that the number one reason women don't invest is fear. Fear of getting started, fear of making a mistake, fear of losing money. And these are valid fears. However, I assuage all of them in the book. And the actually biggest mistake you can make investing is not getting started at all. That is the biggest mistake. The analysis paralysis that happens for women of, I need to know everything about this thing before I'll make a decision is like a beautiful trait of like, I'm going to research things really heavily, but it ends up really damaging us because we lose out on that valuable time. We go, oh, I'll figure out investing next month or next year or in 10 years. (laughs) We keep putting it off. But the truth is, is you lose money every single day, truly every day you put it off. So yeah, I end the investing chapter with this plea of like, There are certain decisions you're going to have to make when you invest, but the only really wrong decision 
is you not getting started at all. Mm. I want to ask you like a million more questions, but we, we do have to wrap up. I'm like, I love the book, Tori. It really was just Thank so you. beautiful and so helpful and made me feel really optimistic about my financial future. But I think one huge thing that a lot of people who have chosen a traditionally creative field have in their head is that they cannot make money in that field, that it's about the art, it's about being passionate, but you're never going to be able to make money. How can they start to dispel this conditioning and embrace the fact that they can and should make money from doing what they love? Regardless of what career path you choose, you are worthy of money. And there is this like starving artist or like nonprofit view that like, oh, if I'm getting a job in a nonprofit, I'm just going to be poor forever. <laughs> and it's like, yes, it is typically harder to negotiate. And yes, typically the salaries are worse than if you were working at like a more traditional job. However, there are opportunities for flexibility and you deserve to be compensated fantastically and you deserve to have money regardless of what you choose. This is something that I'm hearing a lot too, is, you know, we're navigating and, and starting to come into a recession as people are like, oh, now's a bad time to ask for a raise because like, you know, there's a recession or I don't know how to manage my money. And it's like, the truth is, is that you are deserving of money regardless of what's happening in the world. You are deserving of that money. And again, I, I would argue it's yet another narrative that the patriarchy tells you to keep you underpaid and overworked is the expectation that like, oh, I chose the nonprofit life or, you know, I'm a painter or I'm a musician. Like this is just the way it has to be. I use my theater degree every day. I'm using my theater degree right now, right? And the way I present myself in the stories that I tell in how I command a room, I use that theater degree and my communications degree literally every day. And yet I have found a career path that is very lucrative and that I love and that tickles the itch of, you know, my theater degree without the traditional performance aspect. I think that there's a lot of flexibility and actually beautiful opportunity that happens for people either in a non-traditional career path or who are in these, you know, jobs that are typically nonprofit artists, whatever, typically told again, you're going to make this certain amount of money. And it's also about your mindset around all of it too. When you realize that you are worthy of love, of money, of opportunity, you will show up different in every aspect of your life. Mm. And again, I talk about this in the book, but like the coolest part of our work is we get messages every day from women, literally every like five minutes from a woman somewhere that our work has impacted her, that it's changed her life. And that's so incredible. And typically the sentence that comes after I paid off $20,000 a debt, or I negotiated a salary, or I you know, open my emergency fund for the first time. It's always, and I feel so much more confident now. And like, that's the feeling. That's it. Because when you have money, it changes every other aspect of your life. You show up differently in your relationships. You show up differently for yourself. You show up differently in your career. You show up differently as a parent. Everything changes when you feel financially confident. And that's the feeling I want for every single woman on this planet. So beautiful. Final, final question you seem like somebody who is so confident and so in your own truth and grounded. One big goal of the show, as I mentioned, is to know, love, and trust yourself enough to go after whatever it is that's on your heart. Where are you at in your journey with those three items? And what's your advice to someone else who's still searching for it? Oh, I'm lit on fire. I always joke when I go into a new therapist's office, I always tell them, worthiness is not going to be an issue here. We're going to have a bunch of other issues that we're going to have to talk about. But like, we don't have to touch on worthiness. Like I remember telling my first therapist that and she was like, okay. And she like <laughs> scribbled a little bit of notes and she was like, okay, cool. And, like you could almost like see her with the check mark. I truly believe myself worthy, truly. And that feels like such a 
exclamatory statement as a woman, which is so unfortunate. Like I even, like I can feel my body do the thing where I'm like, Oh, I, you know, people are going to take that weird. But the truth is, it's like, I feel so worthy of good things. Mm. I feel so worthy of love and a good partner and of all of the good things, money and opportunity and a good career and a really fabulous life. I feel a hundred percent deserving of that. And if I can make one other woman, and I think we have made one other woman feel that way, we've done our job. Ooh. Well, I think you're going to be an, we already are, but certainly from this episode, you're going to be an expander for a lot of people, not only on their financial literacy and their ability to earn more, to have a more beautiful life and share it with others, but also, and I think most importantly, as it's a foundation for everything on their inherent worth. So thank you for being an expander for me and for my listeners and for all you do for women and people everywhere who are trying to find their worth in the world. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. Thanks for listening and thanks to my guest, Tori Dunlap. For more info on Tori, follow her at her first 100K and 100 is the number and at Tori Dunlap. And you can also visit her website, herfirst100k.com, where you can find her podcasts, investing tools, money tools, and get a copy of her first book, Financial Feminist, which is also available wherever good books are found. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit this episode of Unleash. You can follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Share it with a friend. Podcasts are mostly spread person to person. And so sharing it with a friend is the best thing you can do for the show. And also, if you do post about it, tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Earner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag the guests at HerFirst100K so she can share as well. My wish for you this week is that you start to notice your relationship with money and ask what sort of money story would be most in line with the type of life you want to create. Then start making small choices to support that. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.